You're listening to NCG Top 100s, a National Club Golfer podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the NCG Top 100s podcast. In each episode we try and take you into a virtual clubhouse and get the inside stories about the courses that feature in the ranking lists you can view on our website at nationalclubgolfer.com. This year we are reinvigorating our list of England's best courses and talking to those clubs both riding high in those lists and looking to get involved. Today we are visiting the 10th oldest club in England an institution that's been part of the pantheon of English golf since 1874. Princes have played here and golfing royalty, Alistair McKenzie and Walter Hagen, to name just two, have left their mark at this seaside layout. And yet, only a couple of years ago, Seton Carew were probably in crisis. Sliding down the rankings, visitors lamented its difficulty and criticised its conditioning. Infestations of nematodes left committee members seriously considering whether to dig up a number of greens and relay them entirely, all of which makes its transformation over the last 12 months nothing short of remarkable. Under the stewardship of course manager Tom Coulson and chair of greens Phil Kane, Seton Carew has a new lease of life, a full membership and the English amateur arriving in 2024 for its 150th birthday. So we are delighted to be joined today by Tom and Phil. Welcome, gents. Hello. Hi. So probably to start with you then, Phil, let's cut straight to the chase. I mean, how difficult did things get at Seton Carew? Yeah, it's a um, fair challenging question to open up on, Steve. Thank you. Yeah, we uh, we were not far off as described, to be honest. Um, you know, we, we lost a, a lot of members. Um, the greens had a lot of scarring on them due to um, uh, obviously some nematode damage. Um, our, unfortunately, due to illness, our uh, head greenkeeper had had to step down from his position. Um, almost like a perfect storm um, is probably the, the right way I would describe it. And um, as most members do, I was probably sat in the wings as someone had been there since I was eight years old, which is sadly over 40 years. Uh, um, due to my age, and um, was uh, was certainly being a backseat driver and commenting from the wings. Um, so, you know, myself and a number of sort of lifers, um, we've been there since juniors. Were, were challenged with, well, come on then, you make a lot of noise. Can you can you come and help us? And so, deciding to join the committee in 2019 um, and being appointed to the committee in November at the AGM. Um, yeah, that that was exactly as described. You know, we we were in that perfect storm uh, with greens with huge scarring and um, and and not a an appointed head greenkeeper. So yeah, I hope that gives you where we were. And as I said in the in, in the introduction, uh, I, I was very lucky to visit Seton Carew a couple of weeks ago. Um, as you know, Phil and Tom, I'm from the area. I was brought up in the northeast of England, so I know Seton Carew well. 
Um, and, and the transformation is remarkable. I mean, that is not hyperbole. Um, the work that, that Tom and yourself have done over the last 12 months has been nothing short of remarkable. So how has that happened? I mean, how did you get to the position where we're in now, where the Greens was clearly some of the best I've seen this year? The runoff areas were perfect. Uh, the, the, the new bunkering is really taking shape. How, how did you get to that point? Uh, probably I'll take the starting point and then Tom can tell you the real detail because to be frank you know what we felt as a committee uh, that the right thing to do was to rectify the situation was that we needed to bring in Sinkru had sort of always had a history of appointing within the Greenkeeper staffing you know it was felt that we needed to go out there and um, test uh, you know the market to see if that we could find an ambitious head greenkeeper who would take on numerous challenges that the club had the coming 150th birthday uh, the, the scarring on the greens um, discussions around the buckthorn removal so some huge tasks so it was felt that um, we wanted to test the marketplace and um, beginning of 2020 we put an advert out um, to see if we could get a, a head greenkeeper course manager and um, we had around 30 applications. Um, we pretty quickly whittled that down to seven and then down to a final short list of three, um, of which Tom was one of those three individuals. Um, three very talented and, and highly qualified uh, people, which maybe as someone who had been at Seton Crew all his life um, surprised me somewhat. But um, then looking back at it now with the course manager we ended up with in Tom, less so. Um, and I think, um, you know, on Tom's appointment, it was clear that he was hugely ambitious, driven. Um, and the reference that he received from um, the course manager down at um, Royal St George's was extraordinary, to be honest. Um, having run my own business, I don't think I've seen a better reference uh, in my life. So um, thank you very much for that, Paul, if you ever listen to this. So, um, so yeah, so Tom, I remember his unofficial starting day, and I think this probably puts you in some sort of thought process around uh, Tom's work rate. Um, he left Royal St George's having done a full shift. Uh, if I'm right on this, Tom, please correct me. But he, he started at six o'clock in the morning down at Royal St George's. Um, you finished a full shift at Royal St George's. You drove to Seton Carew. And as I arrived at the club after work at about six, seven o'clock, uh, you were on the 18th green beginning um, that very day to putting right the wrongs on the golf course. Am I, am I right with that recollection? Yeah, that was a very long day, um, but, <laughs> but we had to get things started. I mean, I don't want to focus too much on what was wrong, but it was a severe case. We actually divoted the greens to start with which is something I've never done before, but it was what was needed. There was big craters in the greens from winter disease. Um, and it was an extreme measure, but it kind of within six weeks, we got the green surfaces back. And then we've kind of, I would say, we've got them progressively better month after month as we've come into this year. So um, we turned the greens around. There's a long list of things that needed sorting on the golf course, but uh, in terms of priority, greens will always be number one. Um, and we've sorted that problem. I was very, uh, I would say, paranoid last year regarding some of the nematode analysis with that on the greens. Um, 
I'm aware of nematodes and what they do in the soil, but I've never seen them actually kill turf to the extent that they did at Sea and Carew. Um, I did a lot of analysis, a lot of testing, and from all that, it, it was such a complicated puzzle that it actually just reverted to kind of basics. What does the grass plant need uh, to be able to offset any pest feeding? And it really just came down to basics on the greens, which kind of stopped the the excessive levels of, levels of stress, which were causing um, the problems with nematodes. And nematodes are still in there. They're in, they're in all greens across the country. But the reason they were causing effects at Seaton Crew was down to stress. So we we reduced the stress levels on the greens and the problems went away. And now we've suddenly got really good greens again. Um, and it was just really just focusing on basics, basic agronomy, basic principles. And there's a much longer term vision for the greens, which will take them to a, to a much higher level. But right now they're, uh, they're performing very well. So I should say, Tom, for listeners, that you were uh, Paul Larson's deputy at uh, Royal St George's. Um, yes. Obviously, you grew up in this area. You, you played a lot of your golf just across the river at Cleveland. So you knew yes. Seaton Carew well. But what was it that you could see at Seaton Carew that uh, made you leave the Kent coast and an open venue to come back home? If I'm being honest with you, I probably always wanted a job at Seaton Carew since I was about 18. When I started Green King when I was 18 and I just always kind of felt that it was a shut up shop maybe to get the job. Head Greenkeeper jobs at top links courses don't come up, they don't come up very often. Um, they're difficult to get. Um, so when the opportunity came at Seaton Carew, I knew I had to do everything I could to get that job. And if it meant sacrificing a kind of high profile position at uh, I'd say the best links course in, in England, they had to do it, you know. There was a, a, a one chance at Satan Crew and took it and uh, over the moon to have got it, to be honest with you. And, and as you alluded to earlier, I mean, you didn't just see problems there, did you? You saw opportunity. Oh, massively. Um, look, the potential of a golf course, ultimately, unless you've got billions of pounds, is down to the quality of the land. Uh, and the quality of land at Satan Crew is, uh, is excellent. You know, it's still kind of impoverished lynx land it hasn't became covered in trees through succession it's got buckthorn on it through planting by man uh, but the actual land is still kind of quite uh, primitive lynx land is ideal for for genuine lynx golf in terms of potential the land offers pretty much everything you could want out of a lynx golf course yeah so just outside of the greens that i think you've You've talked eloquently about earlier on. What else have you been doing in your in your first year? I mean, there's obviously quite a lot of bunker work that um, that's been going on over the past year. Well, yes, when I, when I uh, first got on site, there was some kind of the most obvious issues with the greens uh, and some of the bunkering, uh, which had been constructed using the astroturf bunkering, uh, which obviously has a place in the industry. Um, but at Seaton Crew, it didn't work. Uh, it caused issues with uh, grass coverage on top of the plastic turfs. Um, and the erosion we were getting around there was actually a health and safety problem. So as the kind of most effective way of reinstating what was actually there at the time, kind of revetted bunkering was brought in to get rid of the plastic bunkers, um, create something looking more natural. Look, the eco bunker was uh, a method to uh, increase the sort of sustainability 
of the golf course uh, management program. It does save a lot of work time, but in this instance, it was just felt that going back to some kind of traditional revetting bunkers would improve things in the short term um, and give you something that looks visually impressive rather than visually negative. So that yeah. was the thinking. So, so we did 18 bunkers with the revetting uh, in the winter. We did a, a few more of the natural style bunkers, which you could maybe argue are more in keeping with the original um, design of uh, St. Cruz Golf Course. Just explain to listeners about how you revet a bunker, how it's done, because it, it feels like um, there's a real art to this kind of work. You know, when you as a golfer, when you get up and you see it closely and you see all those little pieces of turf all stacked up on top of each other, it, you know, it looks like something that it looks a bit complicated. So how do you do it and what sort of effort and time goes into it? Uh, generally a small greenside bunker with a team of two. You could probably build it in a couple of days. Um, there's obviously a bit more work with some of the sort of sculpturing around that bunker if you re landscaping some of the contouring. Uh, but to build a, a small greenside bunker, you're probably talking a couple of days. It's using sort of one or two inch stacked turf. Um, you want to get the right kind of turf that holds itself together properly and provides that kind of support. You don't want it to be too springy, uh, so it'll sink in the future. Um, you're basically doing an outline of where your bunker is going to be and backfilling each layer with sand, like heavily compressing it and then laying the next row on top of that, uh, generally with an angle of about 55 degrees um, and keep going up until you've got your desired height. Um, some of the bunkers were built very deep, uh, but I was really just replicating what was already on shore with the previous bunkering, you know, uh, didn't want to change things too radically at this stage because those shapes that were on show when I came had probably been there for a long time. Uh, some of the most spectacular examples of the work that you've done is um, at the at the early par three, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the third, um, you've got some new bunkering in there on the right hand side and obviously that um, really defined runoff area now which um, which um, it, it's great because it gives golfers a choice doesn't it, I mean we can either try and run it up with a putter or we can try and take um, quite a lofted club to what is very fine turf. I mean, uh, just take me through how that happened and how pleased you are with that work, because it's, it's, it, it, I think it's a sensational addition. Yeah, um, the third hole originally, it had the, the eight deep bunkers. Um, the turf around the green was of the kind of coarser ryegrass type, which uh, one would get out of hand quickly with growth, and um, two, two would uh, not be as smooth a surface and as fast a surface as you'd want for the options you can have around the green, the bump and run, the, the spinning pitch off a tight lie and the putt using the contours. Um, previously, it was kind of a small apron with a lot of semi-rough. Now, one thing I'm, I would say against is a lot of semi-rough on a golf course. To me, semi-rough is a, an interim zone between close-cut turf and rough. Um, I don't see the reason for acres of semi-rough all over a golf course. Uh, to me, there should be kind of three heights of cut on a golf course. That's your green, that's your playing turf, and that's your semi-rough. And that semi-rough is just a small zone. So we made a much bigger area of close-cut turf uh, to the left and to the right and behind the green. We properly irrigated the hole, so we put sprinklers in so that we could maintain the turf. That previously wasn't possible. And I think now there's a lot more options if you do miss the green. You've probably got five or six different shots you could play as opposed to kind of a hack out the rough or a 
well, it wedge out of the bunker, which was often the kind of case. Yeah, it was always a marvellous par three, but I, I think now it's it's just been elevated to a new level, Tom. So, so great work there. I mean, let me bring you back in, Phil, um, if I may. Um, there is some exciting work to come, isn't there? I mean, we've seen the first fruits of what has happened over the last few months, but I mean, particularly um, with the Gorson Buckthorn removal um, that's coming down the latter holes, I think particularly, I mean, I think when people see the transformation at 17 and 18, perhaps next year, that's when it will be most exciting. So just take me through um, why the club has decided to do that, because I was I was talking to to Tom off air and some of that Buckthorn's been there for a very, very long time, hasn't it, Phil? Yeah, um, <laughs> it has. And um, again, having been uh, over 40 years, um, go back to my childhood and I was... Um, it was uh, an income for me because I used to be in those bushes finding golf balls, to be perfectly honest, and trying to sell them back to the members. So, uh, yeah, um, the bushes had become um, a real problem for the golf course, um, particularly from a conditioning perspective. Um, obviously, they're a real hide for the rabbits. And, and uh, having been on working parties um, where we're trying to repair um, rabbit damage, um, it just a battle. So, um so really, from a golf course perspective, um, it was felt I, I very much uh, sort of have the same opinion as Tom in the fact that, you know, we don't want too much semi-rough. Um, we want natural links land. I love the idea of a runoff um, and then small bit of semi and then you've got that natural rugged dune land that, you know, St. Cruz got plenty of it. So why are we covering it in bushes? Really, though, I, I must admit that when it was first discussed, the removal of the bushes initially i was i was perhaps against it um you know I, you know it, it was a real sort of cultural shift for the golf course because they are a, a a brutal deterrent to a golf hole because it's the equivalent of a lost golf ball but over time and in particular when i spent um you know sort of more research and particularly talking with tom once tom's appointment became apparent uh, you know I'm, I'm very much now um I mean, in, in the belief that um, none of the great championship courses, uh, links courses, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, whilst we've got the industrial scape on one side at St. Crew, which, you know, can be seen as a, a bit of a scar, but, you know, a huge amount of uh, jobs and opportunities. Then on our sort of uh, coastline there, you know, if if we remove the bushes, we, you know, we can begin to see the dunes and, you know, the sea and the beach and everything. So I think it gives us a huge opportunity not only to improve the golf course and the experience of of not, you know, not being punished of losing the golf ball the moment you hit it into a bush. Uh, you've got a chance of finding it and perhaps, um, you know, hit, hitting a shot out of a dune or, a, or you know, or escape, that side of things. But also, uh, I think it will uh, it will really make an enormous difference to St. Carew, um, you know, because that's probably the biggest criticism of the golf course. You know, we've got a wonderful piece of land and we're not really making the most of it. So I hope that answers the question. Thoroughly, Phil. So <laughs> thanks very much for that. Very detailed. I mean, Tom, from from your point of view, looking at particularly the back end of the golf course, 16, 17 and 18, which is where Thorne really intrudes at the moment, doesn't it? I mean, 17 is an absolutely spectacular golf hole but that but that that goes from Buckthorn does sort of move now into the teeing area a little bit and into yeah. the line of shot I mean are you excited about getting in there with the contractors and the bulldozers and opening that whole area up 
Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, 17's got potential to be one of the one of the great holes in Lynx golf. Um, certainly unique as well, but you can't really see it until you're 200 yards off the tee because you're you're hidden by bushes. So when suddenly when everything's opened out and the underlying sand dunes have settled and Lynx vegetation starts to reestablish, you're gonna have a kind of a, a much better looking golf hole uh, from the tee rather than just this kind of intimidating approach shot to a very unique green that's tightly protected. Um, and I mean, the top three holes that were brought in for the in the 70s, uh, when those bushes are removed, you're going to have some spectacular golf holes amongst the dunes. Uh, previously, you never really saw the the, uh, the best elements of the sand dunes because bushes were in the way. Yeah, the, the par five in the corner is going to be very different, isn't it? I know that I think the number of that hole depends on which combination of course you're playing on and we'll get on to the the various routing shortly but once that gorse is removed that's going to be a very different kind of par five isn't it very much so i mean at the moment you've you've got to ring a bell uh, to let the people know that you've cleared the fairway for them to tee off um when the bushes have gone you'll suddenly be able to see a golf hole um you'll be able to see just how much you can actually carry because it's a bit of guesswork you need to play the course probably 10 or 15 times to actually know the the line on that hole uh, whereas when you can see it in front of you, it'll be a bit more obvious, uh, and I would say a big improvement. Yeah, we've got a unique golf course here, Phil, in the sense that you have 22 holes that can be used in a variety of combinations. I think we, Dan and I got famously lost <laughs> when we came a couple of weeks ago, moving hey. from, moving from the um, from one hole to another. I mean, which do you think is the the best routing? You know, if you had to established premier course there and i'm sure you've been asked this question a few times you know by various people um which would it be and 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 is there uh an idea that perhaps you will do that in the future that you'll that you'll have an 18 that will just be your championship course gosh you've uh, you've really thrown me the curveball on that one um yeah um i think um obviously as, as you as you well know we only lease the land across the road uh, from the port authority so um you know I, I guess in some respects they're always under some sort of threat although they're obviously ssi and uh, you can't really do an awful lot with them from from a um, commercial perspective um but um i think we'd have to build a golf course and we'd have to build it around the the land that we own so therefore um and 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 Obviously, this land is, uh, is closest to the sand dunes, which was the new holes that were built in the 70s. So, uh, um, but I do love the top holes as well, and, uh, and we're doing a lot of work, or Tom's got um, a lot of plans to do some work on 789, uh, again, restoring some of the original features that were there under Mackenzie and so on. So, that's a really difficult question. I think um, probably my favourite course is the, uh, the, the Brabazon layout, actually, which... Um, um, which obviously encompasses all of the new holes that were built in the 70s and that wonderful land that's out there. Um, but it's a bit unbalanced, uh, par fives in four holes. Um, so I think, you know, if I'm brutally honest, I'm not sure we completely understand um, the best way to balance the layout. Um, but the land has got to be as much of the new holes that were, as I say, that were built in the 70s. So. Um, yeah, if you, if you had to me to hang my hat on one, it would be the Brabazon layout. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, Tom, huge progress has been made in the last year. 
how big an opportunity do you think Seton Carew have got here? I mean, how high can this course climb? How good can it get over the next couple of years as you do this work that you want to do? Well, I guess progress is kind of uh, governed by kind of manpower and ambition. We've certainly got the ambition. Um, we're going to be working our asses off to get this this project as good as it possibly can be. As I said earlier, the potential of a golf course is kind of is governed by the quality of the land. Um, you've got a lot of things that are already created at Seaton Crew um, in terms of some of the uh, greens complexes, which are which are superb. We just need to tap into them and. Uh, Rather than have long grass around a lot of the greens, actually do tweaks and cutting, suddenly people start seeing a golf course that maybe previously didn't notice. Um, so I think if we just keep doing what we're doing, we're going to get better every year. Uh, we keep doing a winter works program. We're going to enhance the golf course every year, make subtle tweaks. We start bringing in a bit more money as a golf club. That progress on each off season will increase because we'll be able to do more. Uh, would be at fund kind of more more machinery to come in and do some of the work for us because um, a lot of the stuff we did last year was basically just with a shovel and my back's still kind of feeling the after effects of that to be honest right now so um, but I think it all starts with ambition we don't want to just do what maybe has been done over the last 40 years which is basically fill in bunkers we want to bring back ones that were lost ones that were relevant uh, to certain golf holes and certain golf shots we're going to reinstate a few of them I mean, when I looked at some of the old wartime photography of the golf course, uh, there, was, there was at least 34 bunkers then that are no longer in evidence now. And you can still see the outlines of them. And as, since then, I believe there's been a few others filled in that were maybe created in the 50s and 60s that then were filled in in the 80s. So there's been a lot of uh, reduction in the kind of uh, bunkering on the golf course and some of the uh, challenges that they would present have been lost. So we're going to try and reinstate the ones that we still feel are relevant uh, and introduce a few that look like they should be there, but they're not. Yeah. And, and people are responding to this as well, aren't they, guys? I mean, you know, um, the, the work has been done, the effort has been put in and the customers are, are back. You know, visitors are, are flocking. It was very, very busy the day we went. Membership is full. I mean, how satisfying is that, you know, to see um the people responding to what you guys are doing i think uh, tom sort of came at absolutely the right time as i say obviously we were we were in a perfect storm and um you know his appointment has lifted the whole club um and certainly his ambition and the team's ambition that he lead you know it's really important to say have embraced um tom's appointment um there was a lot talent um and they just needed that experience and direction which which tom's brought and um yeah um obviously his his appointment has, has, has driven all of this and um you know the club's busy um i mean obviously we have had golf has been a beneficiary of the the pandemic boom if you like because obviously it's a sport that lends itself to playing in an outdoor environment um but it's wonderful to see that we've got a full membership obviously we've got waiting lists Sometimes it works against us being up on that northeast coast where it's difficult. Um, but I think, um, you know, the course had lost its way a little bit and was very sort of focused um, with a thought process about where its membership was coming from. What we've seen is that um, we've really tapped into, you know, our strength, which is, you know, drawing members from, you know, outside of the local sort of town and area. And, uh, 
you know, as a, as a, as a junior, I always remember people traveling from sort of the Leeds area and, and up to the, you know, to St. Carew and with us being, you know, the history and the quality of the land and everything else that's Tom alluded to, um, we've seen that, you know, really make a difference to our membership. And uh, yeah, the, the feedback from the members is that, you know, that it's possibly the best they've seen it in, you know, like myself, 30 or 40 years. You know? So, which, you know, I, I give 100% of the credit to Tom and his team on that. You know, it's absolutely extraordinary. You know, start of this podcast was all about divoting the greens, you know. So it, it is a tremendous turnaround. So credit on that one, Tom. Yeah, I mean, the, the potential of the golf course is governed by how good the land is. The land is as good as the best links golf courses. You know, it's certainly not a like a west of Ireland kind of links where you've got huge dunes, but there's some really interesting natural topography. There's golf holes out there that are essentially natural. You know, you can see see where the green should be anyway without having to move loads of earth. Um, I think you could never call it a blank canvas, but there's a lot of things that you can add to the tee shots that will change how the course plays. So we've got a course that might not be 7,400 yards, but when there's not many fairway bunkers in play, it definitely doesn't play as long as it could do if there was more of a tariff on the drive. Um, agronomically, I want to get the greens really firm so that you have to play the holes properly. You can't just be smashing sand irons out the rough and stopping on the green. Um, it wants to be a course that's set up so that you have a reward for having the right angle to the green um, and a punishment for, for being offline uh, with a tee shot. I want the course to be uh, easy to play but hard to score. You know, it's a, it's a championship golf course that should be playable by all. And you achieve that by having playable rough. You achieve that by having uh, numerous tee boxes that can accommodate the different uh, distances various golfers can hit it. But at the same time, we don't want people shooting row 68 without playing proper golf. So I think we can accomplish all of that just with, with forward management of the golf course. Well, it's uh, certainly an exciting time ahead, and I'm sure all listeners will be riveted um, to both hear about what's happening at Seaton Carew in the future and see it as well. I mean, I would urge you to uh, travel to the northeast of England and and have a play around Seaton Carew. You won't regret it. Now, we don't let our guests go um, without asking them for their top three English golf courses, because we are... Um, at National Club Golf are doing our Top 100 England this year. So let's start with you, Phil. Um, three English golf courses that you would put your work away right now, get in the car and go and visit. Which trio would they be? Probably number one um, uh, would be Birkdale, I think. Um, just an extraordinary course challenge um, in a in a piece of the country that is a golfer's paradise so um certainly Birkdale number one um I'm a big fan of uh um I think uh they've got some of the best greens that I'd certainly ever put it on uh, I've been fortunate to, to play a bit of golf around the country um and then just I probably stayed on the links side there I think unfortunately I've never visited Rod St George's Tom please sort that one out um but um, I think I'd throw in Sunningdale, just give that a little bit of a different test. Um, again, um, you know, an extraordinary piece of land and a condition of 
you know that probably I'd never experienced. So uh, so so those three, I think I'd be pretty lucky. I think I'd uh, die a happy man if they were in my last three courses that I ever played. So um, there you go. Yeah, I think a lot of people would would feel the same way. A heavyweight trio there, so no pressure, Tom. Um, what would be your best three English golf courses? Best three? Um, I've always loved Burnham and Barrow. I've always thought that's a massively underrated golf course. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the experience every time I've been there. Uh, great agronomy on the greens. Plays like a link should. It's in a part of the world where it gets hot quickly, so it's often very firm and fast. Um, love that place. It's a tough test. Um I would say Royal St George's, where I've recently worked. I think that place is uh, an example of some of the the best links greens going now. Um, it plays exactly as a kind of old-fashioned link should play. Uh, very unique golf course, kind of secluded feel in every hole. Massive piece of land, you know, crammed together with kind of fairways running just next to each other. It's a very good experience playing there. And as a third one, I really, I do love. Royal West Norfolk. That to me is probably the most unique links experience uh, I've had. And to be honest with you, I've, I've played there twice. I'd love to play it again just so I can just soak some more of it in. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, brilliant selection as well there, Tom. Listen, uh, Tom and Phil, um, all the best uh, for the coming year and the future at Seaton Career. It's great to see. Um, the course doing well and uh, thanks for joining me on the NCG Top 100s podcast. Thanks Steve. Thanks Steve. Cheers. And you can view all of our ranking lists by clicking on to our website nationalclubgolfer.com and heading over to the NCG Top 100s banner.